There are two signs that I'm just itching to put up here at St. Barnabas. Um, the first sign would just be um, an amendment to the white sign at the front of the church, the white sign that gives our service times and so on and so forth. I'd like just in small print at the bottom of that sign to write, may contain traces of nut. <laughs> the second sign that we need is a sign for our three gates. At the moment we have um, on each gate a small sign that reads, for the safety of children, please close the gate. We need a second sign on each gate, lower down and in bigger print, and that sign should read, beware of the God. Last week, we heard about how David captured the city of Jerusalem, a city that had been until his day a city belonging to the Jesuits, not the people of Israel. Well, today's text is about how David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Um, and it is a text that has a lot of blessing and a lot of cursing. Uzar is cursed and he dies, but Obed-Edom is blessed and everything he has prospers. David blesses the people of Israel in the name of the Lord, then goes home to bless his own household. But in the end, Michal, his wife, brings a curse upon herself. How are we to understand these things? Well, I think the first thing to understand is a little bit of backstory so that we can understand what this Ark of the Covenant thing is and what its significance is, why it's so significant. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was basically a box that had been built 450 years earlier by the Israelites on the Sinai Peninsula, under Mount Sinai, immediately after they'd come out as slaves from Egypt. The box was 1.1 meters long, and it was 68 centimeters high and six, sorry, 68 centimeters high and 68 centimeters wide. It was made out of acacia wood and completely overlaid with gold. It had four gold rings attached to its feet. And by way of these rings, two long poles were permanently in position never to be removed, poles to carry it with. The poles were also made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. The ark had a cover. And on the cover, which was called the mercy seat or uh, the atonement cover, on the cover were two gold figures, cherubim, two cherubs, one at each end facing each other but looking down at the cover with their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with their wings. These cherubim were angelic beings. And I don't think anyone knows with any certainty what they looked like except that they had faces and wings. Now, originally, the ark housed the stone tablets of the covenant, the two stone tablets Moses brought down from the mountain. Later on, other things were placed in it too, including a gold jar of the manna that they ate in the wilderness. So the Ark of the Covenant, which in our passage today is referred to as the Ark of God or the Ark of the Lord, the, the Ark of the Covenant housed the Ten Commandments. The Ark itself was to be housed in the Holy of Holies, the central, most holy place of the tabernacle or sanctuary. But the real significance of the Ark is in a promise that was made concerning the ark, a promise made by God to Moses. 
And God said, Exodus 25, verse 22, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. So the significance of this gold box is this. It is the place where you met God under the Mosaic covenant. It is the place where God promised to be found. Now, to be sure, uh, God is everywhere. Uh, God is omnipotent, as, as, as we say. Uh, but it is also true that God manifests himself, his power and his glory, where and when he chooses. Now, around the time that David was born, the Israelites actually lost the Ark of the Covenant Uh, They lost it in battle. Uh, They were fighting their neighbors, the Philistines, and they kept on being defeated. Battle after battle they lost because uh, they were being punished. They were being punished for being unfaithful to God, to being unfaithful to his covenant. The Israelites, thinking that they could magically invoke the power of God by carrying the Ark of the Covenant into battle, did exactly that. But Israel was defeated, and the slaughter that day was very great. 30,000 foot soldiers lost their lives, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And they kept it for seven months before returning it. While it was in their care, the Ark caused devastation wherever it went. If they placed it in the temple of their gods, then their idols ended up the next morning lying face down and broken on the floor. If they took it to a city, there was devastation and plague so after seven months, they'd had enough. And the Philistines decided, well, we'll put it on a cart drawn by two cows. And the cows pulled the cart to Israel. The cows, that is, not people. There were no drivers with the cart. And along the way, the cows pulling the cart back into Israel, 70 Israelites died when they looked into the Ark of the Covenant, where the Lord said, don't do that. You can read the full story for yourselves in 1 Samuel chapters 4, 5, and 6. But on that day, when the 70 young men died, uh, the residents of Beth Shemesh, mourning the heavy blow that the Lord had dealt, dwelt, uh, dealt against them, um, they said, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? And so then, returning to our text today, we need to talk about Uzar's death. What is Uzar's death all about? Well, as you heard, some bright spark suggested a cart, a new cart as a better way of transporting the ark than carrying it. Where did they get that idea from? Well, now we're able to answer that question. They got the idea from the Philistines. Um, It happened a long time ago, maybe 30 years previously, but still folk remembered how the Philistines put the ark on a cart and it came rolling into town, pulled by cows. And we should remember that back then, a cart was an impressive piece of technology. It was big and expensive. Not everyone could afford carts. And it was labor-saving, advanced technology for its day, in flash and impressive Let's do what the Philistines did and make this a really special occasion by using a brand new cart. After all, less effort that way. However, 
soon after setting out, um, passing the threshing floor, there was a rut in the road. The oxen stumbled. The ark shifted in its place. Uzzah sent out its hand, his hand to steady it. And the Lord burned with anger over Uzzah's act, over his error, and he struck him dead instantly. He died there by the ark. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Um, there, there, there's something about God that's very difficult to talk about. Um, that thing which is difficult to talk about is the fact that God is holy. When we talk about the holiness of God, we are talking about a characteristic of him that he shares with nothing else. When we talk about the holiness of people or the holiness of things, we're talking about them being set apart for God's exclusive use. But when we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking about a characteristic of him, the power of his utter perfection in every conceivable way. It's not easy to describe what that means, and it's fairly impossible to anticipate what it's like except in the presence of God. But when you're in the presence of God, people suddenly and fully experience the power of his holiness and know immediately that that is a power that will destroy them because they are not holy, because they are not perfect. Sinners can't coexist with a holy God. It's destruction. Why can't sinners coexist with a holy God? Because God is the ultimate reality. God is truth. And sin and evil, in some sense, are always lies about God. Things that are inconsistent with his word or his character. Um, can you see that truth is always going to be destructive with respect to lies? If, if somebody says, oh, uh, two and two equals five, all you need is four oranges or four fingers to instantly destroy that lie and to show that two and two equals four, not five. And the lie is destroyed. The, 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 the assumption that the assertion is revealed to be false. Truth is powerfully destructive of falsehood. Suddenly finding himself in the presence of the Lord, um, Isaiah cried out, I am doomed because I'm a man of defiled lips and I live among a people of defiled lips. And Peter, in the presence of Jesus, cries out, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And the people of Israel, in the presence of, of the Lord at Mount Sinai, cried out to Moses, You go and talk to God and we'll do everything you tell us. But please don't let him speak to us again because we know that we will die. What, what God does in inviting people to live with him and come into his presence, therefore, is to extend to them grace. To Isaiah, a burning coal to cleanse his lips. To Peter, a word, do not be afraid. To Israel, what they've said is good. Moses will be my spokesperson. It is only by the grace of God that we can survive in the presence of God. But God's grace 
actions. It has limits so that we don't take it for granted. The poles on the, the ark are grace poles. They are tongs, if you like, for handling a holy God. Thus the need for our sign. Beware of the God. Perhaps Uzzah's sin is difficult for us to understand because it is so understandable. The oxen stumbled. The, 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 the ark shifted by reflex. He his, outshot his hand. But you know, all sin is a lie about God. And you don't lie in God's presence. All sin is a lie about God. And Uzzah's action revealed his assumption that God needs to be saved by people. And that's a lie. Uzzah stepped in to save God. And in fact, we've already had at this point in the narrative, we've already had three stories showing us that God is perfectly capable of saving his own ark. Uzzah stepped in to save God. And that's a lie. The fact that it's a regular, common, everyday religious lie, uh, this notion that we need to step in to save God, to defend his cause, you know, it blinds us to the power of it, but it's a lie. We don't need to save God. We don't need to defend his cause. He's big enough to look after himself. But Uzzah made this mistake. He acted out a lie about God in God's presence, and he was destroyed. Truth destroyed him. Beware of the God. When we look at Uzzah's death, we see truth. God and sinners can't coexist. When we look at the poles, we see grace. God finds a way so as to make room for us in his presence, but his grace is bounded by his law, his word. And in this instance, it was do not touch Now, if it's true that sinners can't survive in the presence of a holy God, it is equally true that human beings can't survive except in the presence of a holy God. It is God who gives life. It is God who blesses. His blessing being his word that fulfills and enables the potential given us at creation. Thus, the story is balanced by Obed-Edom, the Gittite, a Levite, the ark is three months in his house and God blessed him and his entire household blossomed and flourished and bore fruit and thrived. Human beings can't do that except that God is with them and God was most certainly with Obed-Edom. I mean, I'm not just talking figuratively. He was literally with Obed-Edom in the living room above the cherubim. That's living very close to God. You might be thinking, Stephen, does this mean that Obed-Edom was sinless, that he could survive in the presence of a holy God? No, no, it was by the grace of God that he survived at all. But Obed-Edom, I'm sure, was a believing Israelite who didn't tread on God's grace as a cheap thing by touching the ark or looking inside. He trod within the boundaries of grace. Uh, Uzzah and Obed give us the polarities. Can't live with God, can't live without him. Can't survive with God, can't survive without him. In his presence we are destroyed, only by his presence do we thrive. 
Let's then think now about Michal and David. Michal was appalled by David's worship. Now, his worship consisted of many things, musical instruments, singing, celebrating bulls and fattened calves, burnt offerings, that is the whole animal burnt as a sacrifice to God, as well as fellowship offerings, that is an animal sacrificed in the name of the Lord, but then barbecued and fed to everybody as a celebratory barbecue. Uh, His worship consisted of um, uh, giving away loaves of bread and cakes of raisins and dates and prayers of blessing said over people. And lastly, his worship consisted of leaping and dancing with all of his might. Dancing. It's a dangerous thing to do. Um, It's easy to be held in contempt if you dance. Um, but David is, it's easy to break a leg if you dance. But David is used to danger. Uh, David grew up around wild animals, uh, defending his family's flock from wolves, lions, and bears. And he spent his teenage years around wild men and in great danger from men. He knows, unlike Uzar, that no one has tamed God. Beware of the God. David knows, however, having been saved by God on so many innumerable occasions, he knows that God can uh, save and that God can deal with his own anger because David actually gets very angry with God in today's text when God rains on his parade and ruins it. But God can deal with our anger against him because he doesn't need to be protected from us. God is not tame. He is dangerous, but he is good. Churches, uh, by the way, are dangerous places where people get hurt. Please don't come to church unless you're reconciled to doing something dangerous. We deal with God here. Beware of the God. And so David dances. Um, The only way of expressing his heart-bursting gratitude at what's going on. The shepherd boy that nobody bothered to invite to family barbecues is now king of a united Israel, bringing the ark of God into his own capital city. Dancing is how we express joy when all other means of communication fail. But over these things we hear um, Michal's reaction to the leaping and the dancing. Dancing by itself, Michal considers undignified enough. However, David is wearing a linen ephod. Exactly what a linen ephod is, is really actually a matter of conjecture, but it would appear to be essentially a short tunic that functioned as underwear. It was underwear for priests. David dancing in his linen ephod was clearly revealing. I don't think he was flashing. But I do think that you could see his bare arms and that you could see his lower legs. He was dressed like a slave boy, in other words, like any common vulgar fellow. And that was just totally the opposite of how rich and important men should appear in public. They should appear in public dignified in flowing, expensive robes of the finest materials, so fine indeed that people should come from far and wide to see his clothing. In the ancient world, rich men's clothes were a tourist attraction. 
Michal is a princess, the daughter of King Saul, a member of Israel's first royal family. She knows how kings are supposed to behave, and this isn't it. Michal makes one of the easiest mistakes that you can make when it comes to God. It's a mistake, I think, that is routinely made in the Anglican church. Her mistake is this. God is important. This event is important. And therefore, being involved in this event, I'm important. One of the easiest mistakes to make. According to Michal, David should have been dignified in flowing robes, walking solemnly at the head of the procession, sober-faced. That would have been dignified. That would have communicated that he is important because God is important. People who make this mistake, and it's most of us from time to time, also make the mistake of drawing this equality. If you are treating me badly, you're treating God badly. This is the very stuffing of religious hypocrisy. And what David does is he just absolutely shreds those equations. He just shreds them. In, in the presence of a holy God, I am nothing. I glorify him by lowering myself, dancing, taking on the form of a servant, a, a table slave, a waiter to the highest and lowest of Israel and paying for it out of my own, out of my own pocket. And what interests me, actually, is that David has no right to wear a linen ephod at all. And he's got no right to make sacrifices. Not burnt offerings, not fellowship offerings, not bulls or calves. All of that stuff was the exclusive domain of the tribe of Levi, the Levites. And David doesn't belong to that tribe. He belongs to the tribe of Judah. Saul, his household, was rejected for kingship because Saul, who belonged to the, house of the tribe of Benjamin, Saul did exactly the same thing. He, he made sacrifices and he was rebuked for it straight away. The prophet Samuel said to him, you've done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. Why was Saul so severely censured, yet David not? Well, Saul failed to keep the letter of the law because of fear of man. He was afraid of his men, that they would scatter and go unless he offered their sacrifices and kicked things along a bit. David failed to keep the letter of the law in order to keep the spirit of it. This was all driven by the fear of the Lord. The text tells us so. All of this activity comes out of his desire to worship God with all of his heart and with all of his strength and with all of his body and with all of his resources. And he doesn't care about what anybody thinks about this except God. And Michal brings Samuel's prophecy into fulfillment. If she and David had ever had children, the line of Saul and the line of David would have become mixed and confused. The issue would be confused as to which house was the royal household down through the generations. Is this, is this Saul or David? Michal dies childless, certainly because she was punished by God, but more than that, she dies childless not specifically because she was punished by God, but rather because she did not seek grace. You see, important people don't need grace. 
she didn't seek grace. She didn't, she didn't repent. She didn't ask for forgiveness. She did not think to negotiate with the God who is slow to anger and abounding in kindness and grace to those who love him. Uh, by the way, um, there are dozens of people in the Old and New Testaments who were infertile, and in most cases there isn't the faintest suggestion that their infertility issues were punishment for anything at all. But here... Michal's childlessness is a punishment from God. Uh, Michal and David give us the polarities. Michal, in the presence of these people, it is vital that we're dignified. David, in the presence of God, nothing is less important than my own dignity. Uzar and Obed, Michal and David, together... They map out for us the enormity of Christ's work for us on the cross. Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice of propitiation, meaning to turn aside God's holy and fierce anger at our sin. Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice of penal substitution. In other words, to take my punishment and yours upon himself as a substitute, to suffer in our place that which was coming for us in order that we might survive in the presence of a holy God. Propitiation, penal substitutionary atonement. Now, something that inevitably happens in churches is the questioning of precisely these two doctrines. You see, as people live and worship and study the Bible and reform their lives and their manners, becoming nice, polite people, living dignified lives and, and obeying the law, these doctrines of propitiation and penal substitutionary atonement begin to sound actually a little bit vulgar, a little bit medieval. All this talk about the wrath of God sounds very old-fashioned. And Jesus dying for me, I mean, really, that's nice, but I've never really done anything wrong. Well, there's much that could be said in response to that, but it really boils down to this. If you don't understand why Jesus had to die for you, why your sin carried the death penalty, then clearly you haven't spent much time in the presence of a holy God, have you? Clearly, you don't know Jesus very well at all. Jesus died on the cross to turn aside God's holy and fierce wrath at our sin. Therefore, if you are a Christian, if you're covered by Christ's blood, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, if you ever ask the question, is God angry with me? You now know the answer. No, he isn't angry with you. That anger was spent on the cross. Jesus died on the cross as our substitute. His life for mine, his life for yours. Therefore, if you are a Christian and you ever ask yourself the question, is God punishing me? 
you now know the answer. No. No. No, if God was punishing you, you'd be dead on a cross right now. God may act as an expression of his love for you to discipline you, to train us in understanding right from wrong, to train us in living according to his word and character. But that's different to punishing us as an expression of his righteous anger. No, he is not punishing you. No, he is not angry with you. The cross reconciles what we've learnt about God today from this passage. How can we live in the presence of a holy God? How can we live in the presence of a holy God? It is only by the blood of Jesus that we may confidently enter his presence. But with the blood of Jesus, we may confidently enter his presence. And we have, being born again, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus literally living inside of us by the Spirit. And so now, by the grace of God, by the cross and resurrection of Christ, We have the grace to live in the presence of our holy and dangerous God. Not just survive, but blossom, flourish, bear fruit, and thrive. The Lord bless you just as he is with you. Amen.